Hello, I'm Patricia, and this is the Poetry Bee Podcast. Well, today we're celebrating our birthday and beginning the seventh year of the podcast. And there are some of you who've been with me all the way. Can you believe we've been learning about and writing Japanese short forms together for this long? How much more we know now than we did way back in 2017. Thank you for joining me, and thanks to everyone who joined me along the way. We've built up a very merry band of poets. I'm sending out two long arms around the world to give you all a hug. Hope you can feel it. So today we're going to celebrate with something a little different. I'm joined by Douglas J. Lanzo, one of our community of poets, to talk about his book, The Year of the Bear. But I have a couple of things to tell you before that. If you're listening in October 2023, our birthday, we've just finished reading periods of haiku and senryu with a cut. If you submitted, you should have had a reply. And if you haven't, do check your spam. And if it isn't there, email me. You've also been submitting split sequences. And I'm taking this month to read and reply. So if you don't hear back by the end of October, same applies. Check spam. If not there, email me. Last and not least, have you checked the Poetry P YouTube channel for the prompt this month? Leave your poems in the comments, please. Linda will be doing her usual sterling job of reading and choosing those to be featured on the podcast. And if you've not signed up for the mailing, please do. There will be some important announcements coming your way and opportunities only poets on the mailing list will be receiving. Now, before we head over to the States to meet with Doug, I want to read you some haiku to get you in the mood for his book. It's The Year of the Bear, and it's set in Maine. So I thought I'd read you a selection of haiku written by poets who hail from that neck of the woods or somehow have an association with Maine. I'm going to start with a piece by Bruce Ross, who, although not born there, is a long-time resident. Deep ocean fog, the dark heron emerges and disappears. Deep ocean fog, the dark heron emerges and disappears. And I found that Bruce Ross poem on the Haiku Foundation website. Paddle at rest, beads of water slide from the loon's bill. Paddle at rest, beads of water slide from the loon's bill. Paul W. McNeil, from the Heron's Nest, Volume 1, Number 1, September 1999. Late February. Stuck to the tree, a snowball in the strike zone. Late February, stuck to the tree, a snowball in the strike zone. Cor van den Heuvel, Modern Haiku, Issue 40.1 Harbour lights, the reclining moon 
tips out a star. Harbour lights, the reclining moon, tips out a star. By Catherine J.S. Lee, from the Daily Haiku, in April 2009. And our lovely friend, Kristen Lindquist, who you can hear reading this poem on the podcast in Series 4, Episode 9. Departing ferry, tossed flowers drift back to shore. Departing ferry, tossed flowers drift back to shore. And that was Kristen Lindquist from her book, It Always Comes Back. And you know what? She'll be coming back soon to read from her latest book, Island, also set in Maine. If you'd like to read more about Maine's haiku poets, Charles Trumbull has an essay you might like on the HSA website. I'll put the link on the show notes. So now I've got you all warmed up for Doug's reading. Come along and live a little in Maine with Doug and the characters from his book, The Year of the Bear. Douglas J. Lanzo, author of The Ear of the Bear. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Patricia. It's an honor to be here. It's lovely to have you. And it's, as you know, an unusual one for us. It's probably a first. We have a writer of prose, a published author on the podcast. But I hope as a community of writers, I know, Japanese short-form poetry, we can find it in our hearts to celebrate when one of our own has achieved something. And Doug is one of our own, being as he is a regular contributor to Poetry P. Now, Doug, we're not just honouring the publication of The Year of the Bear, but we're celebrating it becoming something of a success. And I hope you're going to tell us about that in a minute. But perhaps we could start with a precy of what the book is all about and who it's aimed at. Sure. Yeah, The Year of the Bear is a coming-of-age story um, of a boy that's seemingly ordinary, that goes through extraordinary challenges. It's set in the rugged, beautiful mountain environs of Mount Katahdin and Moosehead Lake, which is in the northern highlands of Maine. Uh, Mount Katahdin is actually the highest peak in Maine and one of the first points of light that dawn hits every every morning, and uh, which is very symbolic because the Abenaki people of which Sasquatch, one of the central characters, are called people of the Donland, and Mount Katahdin is a sacred mountain to them. Um, so Jason Wilson is a 13-year-old protagonist. He's raised by his father, Kyle, who's a rugged outdoorsman, a carpenter. Um, he goes, it's a journey of their relationship, um, mentored by Sasquatch, who's a very wise uh, Indian who's um who's almost like a shakespearean um uh, shakespearean character in some ways as his, his his wisdom dignity transcends um you know his he's a farmhand and uh not extremely educated but he's the wisest person in the book so and a beloved character by a lot of people um so through this they raise a bear cub that's orphaned i won't give away the story there too much but uh, a black bear cub um, that they have to teach to hunt, fish, forage, and ultimately release. Um, and it's the 
story of their maturation together, um, the physical, emotional, and spiritual challenges that they have to go through. Um, and it's by readers and reviewers alike, they've really said it's inspirational, compelling, uplifting, heartwarming, and heartrending at times. It's uh, very much, uh, Scott Mason was calling it cinematic and compelling and uplifting, which was a great tribute. So I, I'm really, really happy with how it came out. That's great. I mean, I have read the book, but I, I've said to Doug off off air, as it were, I'm not going to give a praise of the book myself because I don't want to give too much away. So <laughs> thank you, Doug. That just gives us a little taste for what it's all about. And speaking of tastes, perhaps this is time for our first reading, if you'd be so kind. Sure. Uh, yes, no problem. Okay. Uh, this is regarding their scaling of Mount Katahdin. Jason and his father forged ahead at a brisk pace, determined to conquer the mountain by noon. The sky looked clear for miles in all directions. Nothing could stop them now. As they neared the summit, seemingly out of nowhere, a storm cloud appeared. There were no other clouds in sight. Before they could react, thunder clapped and a streak of lightning flashed across the sky. Terrified, believing that they were in most dangerous position, so high upon the mountain, Jason crouched to the ground next to his dad trying to keep as low as possible. They braced for an onslaught of rain. However, only a light, misty rain fell upon them in the adjoining ground. Soon the mist dissipated, revealing a clear blue sky in all directions. The two looked about them in amazement. Jason saw at first. They were standing before the graves of Sasquatch's father, grandfather, and great-grandfather, each formally revered as a shaman of the Penobscot people. Distinguished even among their tribe for their deep ties to Mount Katahdin, Sasquatch's ancestors had summited the lofty peak for generations before the likes of Henry David Thoreau and Theodore Roosevelt. In fact, so ardent were his great-grandfather's efforts to preserve and protect Katahdin from the ravages of overlogging that plagued early 20th century Maine that its famed conservationist governor recognized and rewarded his devotion. In a remarkable gesture, when the trailblazing governor and philanthropist Percival Baxter donated Baxter State Park, he granted special dispensation for Sasquatch's great-grandfather and lineage to be buried just off of the summit of Katahdin's regal crown. Fittingly, it later was named Baxter Park in Percival's honor. This burial rite only served to deepen the aura that enveloped Sasquatch's forefathers and their bare family clan. Although Sasquatch denied that any of his ancestors had possessed supernatural powers, he told Jason that they had been gifted with great wisdom and an uncanny ability to interpret and discern nature. In Jason's eyes, Sasquatch likewise appeared to be endowed with a remarkable ability to comprehend the mysteries of nature. Jason's father turned toward him with a dumbfounded look on his face. We must have gotten sidetracked from the trail because this is the first time I've ever seen these graves. There were stone markers at the head of each grave with symbols and decorations engraved upon them. Each also bore an inscription in the Abenaki language with which neither of them could read. There were also stunning white feathers sewn together and tied to a wooden stake in front of the graves opposite the markers. Jason's dad knelt and touched the feathers. These are feathers from the crown of a bald eagle. Jason and his father looked out from the mountain downward at the peaks of 30 other mountains of Baxter State Park a string of serene, rounded gems crowned by the kingdom of them all, Katahdin. Ponds, ponds, rivers, and lakes stretched out in all directions. Katahdin Lake to the east, Milanakit, Namakanta, and Pemadumak 
lakes to the south, the western branch of the mighty Penobscot River to the west, and Great Lake Matagaman and the eastern branch of the Penobscot to the north and east. Never before had Jason seen such a panoramic view of Maine's rich and pristine glacier-created topography. With the wind and sunlight striking his face as he gazed out upon the expanses below, Jason felt what he would later call the majesty of Maine from above. Jason could now appreciate why Sasquatch's father had asked to be buried here atop Maine's sapphire sky. Deep in thought, Jason and his father turned and slowly walked back to the trail. Humbled and sobered by the terrifying yet hauntingly beautiful experience, neither could explain the strange storm cloud and mist which had appeared and disappeared so mysteriously, and neither could recall having left a trail at any point in their final approach to the summit. Thanks, Doug. You can quite see why uh, Scott Mason talked about the book or the, the prose being cinematic, can't you, when you sort of get that view when you spoke of the view and when i read about the view um as you know i have a few mountains near me um it just it takes me back to the top of our mountains and and how the views you can see of the lakes etc from here so oh, it yeah. was sort of very familiar sort of idea for me I, I just loved it great thank you um now going back to what i said before you did the the reading the Year mm -hmm. of the Bear has done very well for itself. Tell us a little bit about that. Uh, beyond the awards, I want to say that I've been really stunned by the endorsements. Uh, one of the, the first endorsements I got was from a New York Times bestselling author, Josh Lee. Um, you, I know we have a very international audience, so some people may recognize him and some might not, but he was also the seven-time Emmy Award-winning executive producer of The Daily Show with, with Jon Stewart. He loved it. He said it evoked um, the, the the classics and was an enthralling adventure and a rare treat. So I I was I was really happy with that. Um, Scott Mason, Scott has been almost uh, a mentor with my haiku. Three years ago, I, I was not very familiar with the form at all. I wrote my first haiku in uh, in the spring of 2020, and Scott really it's not he he taught me more through his books how to how to write haiku. But um, but he was just very kind, always encouraging. I sent him some haiku that he really enjoyed. So he he's a, as a mentor, he graciously agreed to read the book. He's the author of The Wonder Code, for those who may, may be familiar with that as well. And this is what he wrote in his endorsement. Bears can move and climb surprisingly quickly. So does this fast-paced and highly satisfying debut novel set in rural Maine, richly evoked. The year the bear tells a coming-of-age story, its action seamlessly interwoven, with moments of indigenous wisdom, personal discovery, and universal truth. If the immediate experience is cinematic, its after effect is inspirational, a compelling and uplifting work. So I was pretty blown away by those two. Those were my first two endorsements. You brushed over the idea of awards. I mean, I, I know the book <laughs> has received awards, but not everybody sure. listening listening to us will. Tell us. Tell us about those. Uh, sure, sure. Um so the first award I won was a Firebird Award. Pretty much my publisher really guided me as to which awards to apply to. Okay. Um, they, my publisher also nominated me, nominated me for the Newberry, which was uh, you know, an incredible honor just to be nominated. I didn't win the Newberry, as you probably know, but I, uh, I was really honored just to be in the conversation for that. And one of the senior editors said it was a contender for the Newberry, which was a great honor to, to hear from the senior editor and uh, who's also an author. Um, but it, 
they won the uh, Ames Award. Um, this this one is more. Um, it's by Cariso Press, and it seems like there's a religious bent to, uh, to to their awards because they do look at what they call courageous faith. Okay. And I'd like to say the Year of the Bear. I don't consider it a religious novel. It's my publisher is a Christian publisher, but um, if you look at the reviews, uh, I've had people from all faiths and no faiths, um, agnostics, atheists, every you know. People from all around the world, from Hong Kong, UK, Germany, India, Australia, Canada, read it, and all really relate to it because it connects to you on a personal level. You feel really like the characters relate to you. And that's the most powerful messages are more the principles rather than the religious element. But that was uh, an award where I won Young Adult Book of the of the Year, which was a tremendous honor. It also was a finalist in the children's category there. Oh, wow. um, and then... I want a more secular distinction with for the Hawthorne Prize, named after Nathaniel Hawthorne, author of the Scarlet Letter, as people probably know. Um, so I, I was uh, designated a finalist. I know they had a, a record year of uh, entries, and they selected 45 shortlisted authors from that, which I made. And then I was selected as a finalist, which were there were 12 finalists. And then from there, they only selected one winner. Um, I didn't, I wasn't selected as the one winner, but pretty much everyone else was a second place prize there yeah. so I, I was honored to to get that um and then for the firebird um in the coming of age category i was a i was a winner it was uh, technically second place in the coming of age category and that was the only category i applied to okay. um so i was really happy with that too um i mean each of the awards had its own criteria but um judges did generally reward for story as well as the you know the book cover and presentation mm -hmm. Um, so there were d different elements, but I, I, I was really pleased with the, how the publisher did, did on the book cover. It was one of my favorite book covers I've seen. So hope people yeah, enjoy it. I think I was just saying to you, I thought it was very strong off air again, but I thought it was a very strong, um, cover. And uh, if people <laughs> go to the YouTube page or to the, to the website, to the show notes, they'll be able to see the the cover we're going to share that with them too it's 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 excellent um going back to the story then Doug, what inspired you to write this story it really growing up um just to give a little flavor of my childhood a lot stemmed from my my childhood um i had really overall happy childhood with um a lot of great experiences with nature and we moved when I was about five or six years old to uh, a subdivided um, farm tract um, in rural Connecticut. This is Eastern Connecticut, about, believe it or not, an hour outside of New York City. But if you went to my town, you would think it was the other end of the world. Um, it literally had dairy farms, apple orchards. Um, it, it it was, you know, like mud holes, they called it, where we fished and, and swam. Uh, it was zoned so there were no new commercial establishments. So it was really preserved. Only 3,000 3, people in the whole town. We all knew each other. People, you know, if, if you forgot to buy sugar or salt, you just walked across the street. So um, on this three and a quarter acre track, um, and we were friendly with the neighbors who sold it to us. They were farmers. Uh, they would have horses that roamed. There were uh, deer. Um, so I fished there. There were muskrats, pheasants, uh, fox um 
all kinds of woodchucks, snapping turtles, water snakes, uh, Canadian geese, pretty much every type of animal I could imagine. Opossums and skunks would come out on a daily basis and eat the leftover food that my father strategically placed near the den window. We would watch. And then he would read to me uh, from a book called Character Sketches. Um, and it would have uh, all kinds of stories about uh, wildlife, including black bears. And there was a big black bear on the cover. Um, so that really, and, and he had this black bear figure, I can try to show it here, over his mantle. <laughs> and uh, it's just a wood wooden carving of a bear. But um, they really brought out a fascination in me when I like studied them and, and read about them because they're extremely intelligent, um, incredibly gifted in terms of their senses, hearing, smell, etc. But, um, and they're wild, obviously, they live in the wilderness, but they have some of the attributes, you almost think like a, a dog, I used to love dogs as, a, as a, a little kid, but I always thought, like a bear cub would, you know, be a great pet. Um, obviously, my book teaches that bears are not pets, but it does, there's a really unique relationship between the bear cub and Jason, very close relationship and with Sasquatch. I can get into a little about his being descended from the bear family clan, which you heard in the reading. Yeah. But um, so, but that was one of my great inspirations. I do have, um, I did travel to Maine and uh, research. I, I, I researched books on it, like the, the as original as I could get uh, about the Penobscot Indians. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, their language has died. Um, oh. uh, the last speaker died in 1990s and they have a sad history. They proudly fought in the American revolution Um with uh, colon uh, colonialists, um, but they were pretty much abandoned afterwards. Mm -hmm. um, really sad commentary, even from the highest court in Maine, that said that basically we have to take care of these people because they're not smart enough to take care of themselves. Okay. Just very paternalistic. Um, so they were relegated to an Indian reservation on an island um, in their in their river, their sacred river, the Penobscot River. But um, and then around the time of the story, uh, we can get into a little bit some of the, the themes of the story, but there is some like bullying and discrimination. There was a, a big settlement um, and they were given 81.5 million in settlement of various claims um, and some casino rights. And they were very derogatorily called casino Indians and worse appellations than that. Um, so that comes out in the story as well. But um, it really underscores part of my inspiration for it was also um just like my fascination and admiration for native americans and how they treat uh respect nature so well they live with it within it like within a sustainable manner not decimating species and um so i wanted to bring that out the dignity of their people and their ties with nature i know you have boys of your own i wondered did you write it for them or were you ever always going to write this book? Right. That's a great question. Um, I actually, when I first, when I, my first version of the book, I wrote all the way back in 2000. So that was before they were even born. Uh-huh. Okay. You were um, always going to write this book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It was a story that I, I just, I've loved writing since I was a little kid. Even when I was in second grade, I wrote stories of mm. supernatural animals and I, I would read them to my second grade class and they were really mesmerized. So I loved, I loved writing. Um, creative short, short stories mostly when I was younger and then I wrote articles when I was as a Harvard I, I wrote in the Harvard Crimson editorials and I didn't realize that at the time but all my editorials were published and it, it's not that 
easy to get published there. So I was, I, I just have a knack for writing. I love, I love writing all kinds of things, uh, professional journals as a lawyer. Um, but I always wanted to keep the creative side of my mind. And I wanted to, I was thinking I had to, like, when I have a family, I'd love my kids to have the same, like, wonderment and fascination with nature and also have some of the life lessons that Sasquatch teaches through, not in a pedantic way, but in a very powerful way because he illustrates it through actions, not just words. Um, I, I wanted my kids to have the benefit of that, but I didn't know if they'd be boys or girls. So I didn't write it to one one set. Um, and hopefully with some of the stronger women characters, um, I know there's Autumn is the daughter of um, Sasquatch. Um, and she doesn't, you know, if it were a movie, she doesn't have as many lines as Jason, but she does have a lot of power and dignity and people feel a lot of empathy for what she's going through and then pride for Jason and the way he treats her ultimately. Yeah, so, I, think, I think we're going to hear, yeah. hear a little bit about, about that um, yeah. in the not too distant future. Oh, that's true. And that's you're, true. you're right. Autumn <laughs> does have, um, she has a quiet dignity. There's a quiet dignity about her and a sort of very strong vibe. As, mm-hmm. it, as it were about that. right right and I'm, I'm interested i was interested that you said that you wrote this before you ever knew you were having children and, and you know yeah you'd have boys girls so it was because jason obviously um he is a very strong character in and of himself and i could see him automatically appealing to you know boys own type uh stories but I wondered if you made Autumn strong so that it wouldn't just be a boy's book. Yeah, I um, I didn't think consciously of that, but okay. I did want a very important thing to me was to have um, the Penobscot characters, her mother as well, um, yeah. be authentic. Um, so to me, sometimes, you know, there's a sort of movie or a book where a minor character is your favorite character. Um, and Sasquatch certainly, and I don't know, not minor characters, but I, I think they show they teach so much to the other characters, the lessons to Kyle and Jason. There's a lot of cross pollination, I would say, where like one positive thing or aspect of what they learn is is applied to another relationship, and you can see that tangibly in the book. And I think that's part of what makes it special that people see that. Um, and um so Adon, so sorry, Autumn, um, her mother Zephyr. I mean, she her her mother too is one of the strongest characters. I want to give away the book, but just when everyone else is, you know, speechless, she's the one that can speak. She's the one that brings them together. Mm. So um and also just even uh, just the dignity, like we talked about with Autumn, she doesn't she doesn't she's not nasty she's a kind-hearted person but she internalizes a lot of the hurt that she has and then when she talks to jason and her father it helps to heal that um so i think people can can relate to 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 actually see how the characters grow and develop that's one of the things i love about it there's not static characters that stay the same um one of the reviewers actually said that in a way every single character has a coming of age in the story and that's what they love about it yeah that's that's yeah it's quite true now i wanted to talk to you a little bit about uh, how your poetry um helps with your writing but it would appear that if this book was written way back in 2000 
mm-hmm. obviously you, you weren't a haiku poet at that stage <laughs> because you've come sure. to that much later were <laughs> you writing poetry and if you were did it help with your prose or has it gone on to help that's with a, your prose that's a great question um so one of the aspects of um publishing the book and the reasons i published it was because of my sons uh when they were 12 years old um i was reading the book to them it was during covid obviously uh, so i probably had their attention more than uh, i do these days as teenagers <laughs> they reacted really well to it and so i i published it because of them i sent it to only i think three publishers and two of them were interested at that time i started had started to write poetry and when i actually applied because um i think you're interested also in hearing a little bit about the process um the process is to write a query letter and they ask you about your publications and I did mention at that point I had published, I think, 137 poems in 39 literary journals. And that helped, I think, establish some of my credibility. But it also helped me from my, my techniques because with my poetry, uh, as you know, every word, especially with haiku, um, Japanese short form poetry really counts. And you're supposed to allow the space for the reader to have their own inference, draw their own inferences, have their own aha moments and connect the dots and have their own dots like they, you know, they not just like what you visualize, but maybe they have a slightly different image or experience they're relating to. So um, I went, when I went back and edited it, I really was cognizant of that. And I took out some of the adjectives and adverbs that I didn't think were needed. And I tightened things up in different places. I think it's time for our second reading, please. Oh, sure. Okay. And um, just to give a little context to this reading, um, there's a scene before this where Jason mistreats uh, Autumn, um, where Autumn is playing and just having a joyous time with a bear. And he has a bit of jealousy and anger about it because he says he's the owner of the bear. He doesn't like that she's speaking to the bear and calling it um, an Abenaki name. What was this, if I pronounce that right? Instead of calling it Coda is his name for it. So he really hurts her because she views him as a close friend. And when he belittles her, she takes it very personally. So then she confides in her father, Sasquatch, about that. And he walks down. He asks Jason to take a walk with him along Moosehead Lake. And just to set Moosehead Lake for you too, it's almost like a sea. It's 118 square miles. It's the largest mountain lake in the eastern United States. So it's really majestic. This is one of the areas of Maine with Mount Katahdin and Moosehead Lake that's um, really Loved, beloved by the people of Maine. Okay. Um, so this is uh, Sasquatch speaking to him. Little Hawk, I have told you the legend. Have I told you the legend of the bear? How a black bear family raised a Penobscot boy until the whole bear family was needlessly slain by a Penobscot man? The wrongful rescuer returned the man child to his human family, which child grew bear bristles and began to act like a bear. Eventually, though, the child did grow up to be a Penobscot man rather than a bear. The grown man, however, wisely remembered his upbringing by the kind bear family and vowed to treat bears like members of his human family from that day forward. That man was the founder of the bear family, the most important family of the entire Penobscot tribe. Zephyr, Autumn, and I are descendants of this man. We are the last survivors of the bear family. Sasquatch paused and then turned from the waters to look directly into Jason's eyes. The black bear is a sacred animal to my family and me. A bear is my brother. Jason can no longer look into Sasquatch's intense gaze 
He could only look down, shameful of his actions earlier that day. My family took a solemn vow never to harm a bear. If a bear attacks me, that will be my fate. The creases around Sasquatch's eyes deepened. Autumn is my blood. Black bears are her kin. Our bear family has a solemn duty to save the cub from starvation this winter. No one man or boy owns any bear in Maine or anywhere else in this world. It is a wonderful, wild creature, belonging ultimately only to God. Do you understand, Little Hawk? Jason nodded, pained at the hurt he had caused Sasquatch and Autumn. I am very sorry, Sasquatch. Very sorry, Jason said. Sasquatch nodded, nodded slightly and continued. Little Hawk, <clears throat> in my tribe, it is taboo for a man to use foul words or to tease or insult a woman. It is, as you know, hard for Autumn at school. Some ignorant people there who do not respect my people mistreat her. Then once again, he looked directly into Jason's eyes. Little Hawk, God adopted me to be part of his family. Likewise, I adopt you to be an honorary member of my family. You are like a son to me, part of my blood. My heart grows very sad to hear how you treated my daughter earlier today, my very blood. Jason felt as though Sasquatch's eyes had pierced his soul. He felt numb all over his body and could not utter a word. In that silence, Sasquatch arose and left him, his son, to contemplate his words. Thank you, Doug. Because uh, I've read that the whole book, that um, that piece, I just find very, very moving, knowing what's coming. And uh, mm. yeah. Anyway. Um, Thank you. I have. Yeah. <laughs> it almost gets me choked up reading. <laughs> I have uh, <laughs> so many questions about this story. Um, sure. So I think it might be time to bowl some of them at you. And sure. obviously, I have very little knowledge of the area of the culture you're talking about because, you know, I'm a European. I'm, I'm you know, I, I haven't grown up in, in this sort of history and culture. So it was really interesting to me to learn a little bit about the Native American culture and obviously the geography and the natural world within the area of Maine, where, you, where your story is set. And uh, it made me smile when you, you told me uh, that you grew up sort of an hour out of New York City, and yet it was um, yeah. <laughs> it was as far from Manhattan, the idea of Manhattan, as you could possibly yeah. think, because I actually drove through that this year not so not so long oh, okay. ago, and it, it's very very rural <laughs> so, yeah <laughs> but you know nonetheless i've not been to maine so it was re very interesting to to hear about that there was with sascott a real interplay between his native american spirituality that that came with his cultural beliefs and christian spirituality and as mm. you said it's it's right. this book is not about religion i mean it pops up here and there and this is one of the areas that it does pop up and I was very interested in that. Does that have a bearing from your research? Did you find that as, as, as something that happens within a Native American culture? It was really important for me to make Sasquatch an authentic character. Mm -hmm. um, I wanted him to, first and foremost, be true to his people and culture. And honestly, um, the first version of The Year of the Bear was a bit less religious, more mystical in different places. You can mm -hmm. still see some of those scenes, even the first scene I I, yeah. I read, has yeah. some mystical elements to it. Um, and his father 
and grandfather and great grandfather, he's descended from a line of shaman. You know, they respected nature. They had their, their god of thunder at the Totten that they worshipped, and their gods are really primarily gods of nature. Obviously, they didn't hear a Christian message when they were growing up, and their generation. But but Sasquatch, it's really a powerful like personal family experience that really leads him to convert. I'm not sure how many um, people in the Penobscot tribe have, have converted to Christianity, honestly. But I think today, um, sadly, there hasn't been a lot of as much preservation of the culture as you would you would hope. I think it's important to Sasquatch that he preserves that culture with his family. And I wanted him to be a person who, through his actions, taught people. Like, his words are very powerful. But so I try to blend elements of his... Uh, of nature and his um and, and legends that he still tells and teaches but he teaches them from the perspective of not believing them as little little truths but they're still really important to his family being from the bear clan and the legend of how that started is important to him i sure. wanted to talk about sasquatch and he's got he has a plays a pivotal role in in this book really uh you you said he wasn't the main character which is true but he's pretty much up there um and one of the areas in which he plays a pivotal role is as a father figure, but not just to Jason, but also to Jason's dad. But the thing that interested me, and I wondered where this idea came from, was that you have, Jason essentially has two fathers. He has his own father, he has Carl, and he has Sasquatch. Um, and as somebody who had a very strong father figure in their lives, I can't imagine anyone um, encroaching on that at all. So where where did that idea come from? And, and I, everyone has their own interpretation. So I'm not saying your interpretation is wrong by any stretch, but just <laughs> what I don't, I don't, I didn't view it as encroaching personally. Like, like when I wrote it, um, okay. I didn't think that Kyle was resenting the relationship between Sasquatch and Jason at all. And um Sasquatch really was trying to strengthen the relationship between Kyle and Jason through kind of healing both of them, the things that they were both independently going through. Um, and my parents went through a painful divorce right around the same time that Jason did, like seventh to eighth grade. Okay. So I, I kind of experienced that um, in a different way. I was closer to my mom, but just um, so it was a little bit opposite of the story in some senses. But so I understood like how Jason would be feeling, probably how the parent might be feeling. To me, like Sasquatch is almost like a godfather figure, um, not in the Michael Corleone way, but in the way of uh, American way of being uh, someone that's almost supposed to be a spiritual protector and um, mentor for the kid. Yeah, um, he's always there for Jason, but. He doesn't, you know, Jason mostly comes to him for wisdom, right? It's and and Kyle. He doesn't just go and preach to them. That's another of his strengths is he waits for the right time when people are ready to hear what he has to say. Obviously, when Jason mistreated Autumn, he had to he had to act. He he oh, yeah. he he made that scene happen. But in general, he waits for people to want to hear what he wants to say rather than just go out to people and preach what he is to say. So that that's the way I viewed it, but um, hopefully it came across that way. No, I think that's fair. I think it it did it it worked for mm -hmm. me because you, you you it's actually really provoked me to think a little bit about um there is one scene where I think Kyle thinks Sasquatch oversteps, but um it is with respect to the decision to raise the bear cup. 
Oh, yeah. But that's a pretty powerful scene, I think, in that Sasquatch basically says it's a sacred duty of his family to raise the bear. Yeah. That is more of a decision that ordinarily, obviously, a father would make. But he he makes it more because of that, because he says it's a sacred duty that he has to raise the bear. Oh, yeah. I think uh, I think that's quite clear in that scene. Definitely. Yeah. And it, it is, as you say, yeah. it's quite a powerful scene in and, in and of itself. Um, yeah. Doug, I think it's time, sadly, for the last from... reading. Okay. I don't think this one really needs too much of an introduction, but I'll just say that um, Jason's father, Kyle, is a consummate woodsman, and he's a he's a great hunter. And I say great, I'm not saying what's the morality of hunting, but just he's, he's a very experienced and skilled hunter. He doesn't really question question the morality of it it's mm. how he was raised how he's built how he's wired how he thinks and jason jason is more a contemplative person that's still formulating what he thinks is right and wrong jason expectantly gazed out into the forest by the far edge of the clearing but saw nothing his father waited for a minute then signaled jason that he would repeat the rattling as soon as he had begun to clash the antlers together once again they heard it the sound of the dominant buck trampling through the woods irate that two lesser bucks had dared to venture onto its sacred territory. Jason could hear the sound of vegetation being thrashed around and trampled underfoot by the furious buck as it closed in on the clearing. For good measure, his father dragged the antlers through his pile of leaves once again. Jason found his heart racing faster and harder than he had ever realized was possible. Without further warning, the strapping buck crashed through the last set of brush and charged into the clearing, brimming over with testosterone. The buck stood directly in the line of fire before Jason, not more than 80 yards away. Jason aimed the rifle right between the buck's front shoulders, his rifle finger trembling. However, inexplicably, he found he could not fire. He recalled his dream, and all at once it made sense to him. Looking out into the clearing, Jason realized why he could not resolve to pull the trigger. The buck was a magnificent creature, a wonderful, innocent creature that reminded him of untamed heart the horse he had ridden as a boy. He could not kill such a noble animal. Jason lowered the rifle and clicked it on safety. Meanwhile, Jason's father was pointing toward the buck with great animation and mouthing the words, shoot, shoot, but to no avail. Puzzled, the buck made a tight circle by the clearing, edge of the clearing, and then bounded back into the woods. Soon it could no longer be seen amidst the dense forest cover. Jason's dad ran over to him, leaving his pack behind. Why in the world didn't you shoot? He demanded to know. Did the rifle jam? No, Jason answered. I I realized that I thought it would be wrong to kill the deer. What do you mean, son? His father asked in astonishment. I mean, I didn't feel that I should be taking its life away for sport. It just looked so noble, almost like a horse. I can't believe. His father abruptly paused, visibly wrestling with his thoughts. At last, he said in a soft voice, that's all right, son. That's all right. I'm sorry, Dad, Jason responded, shaking his head and looking down at the ground in embarrassment. There's nothing to be ashamed of. You followed your conscience and did what you believed was a moral thing to do. It's what I've been trying to teach you to follow your whole life, so I can hardly fault you for it. Heck, I'm still learning myself to practice what I preach. Jason looked up at his father with relief. Come on, son. There's a great college game on this afternoon. I wouldn't want you to miss. Notre Dame versus Michigan. His dad st stated, retrieving his rifle from him. 
His father slung the rifle over his shoulder and headed for the fir tree where his dad had left the pack. So long as we don't kill anything on the way, I think we can make it home for the one o'clock kickoff. Jason smiled. That sounds good, Dad. Real good. Let's go. They trudged through the woods back home together, holding entirely different beliefs about the morality of deer hunting, but each respecting the other's opinion and admiring the other's actions. All right, this all sort of pre-warned you that the element of, of gunship or having the guns in the books is, is was interesting from a European point of view, or at least from a British point of view, because sure. you know we generally don't have guns. Right, right. So I was really, when we got to this scene, I'm thinking, oh, yes, that's <laughs> lovely. I'm just so pleased <laughs> that that scene is in there. <laughs> but on a sort of more serious note, we spoke or you spoke about um, that everyone was sort of, everyone within the, within the book sort of learns from each other. It was a lovely part of the book that Jason and his dad are both have both gone on a journey in this book. But this just shows how much they are learning from each other it's not just jason that that is having all the lessons here so i thought that was was wonderful and and again sasquat way in the background quietly playing a pivotal role role in all that yeah now you mentioned you mentioned the horse in this reading and i'm not going to give too much away about the horse but it does have some pertinence to the story once you've read the whole story, you'll understand why the horse is mentioned in this this part. Definitely. Um, Cal was really struck when Jason referred to uh, a deer reminding him of a horse because of his family's close connection to horses and it being such a noble creature. Um, for both connections with his, his own father, Cal's own father, and with the way he met his wife, actually. So... He, he that, that really made him think of a deer in a different way that he had never thought of before. I think it gave him extra pause there. Yeah. I think, uh, well, that's what it felt like to me as the reader. Like, anyway, I'm very sad that we've come to the end now, Doug. And I want to thank you very much for coming along and telling us all about the book, the process of putting it together, reading to us from the book. Uh, I, I really hope this has inspired many of our writing friends to continue with their prose as well as their poetry, obviously. And who knows, Doug, you, you may have set someone else on, on a path to getting their novel <laughs> published. Have you got any more novels in you? I appreciate that. Um, yeah, I actually have a novella. It's a uh, young adult. When I say young adult, really, um, the, the main characters are in their 20s. Okay. Um, and it's a uh, army ranger uh combat um officer who's wounded it's a romance suspense it's it's a very dramatic um in some ways uh even as dramatic or more so in, in scenes than the year of the bear and it was really inspired by a close friend of mine died in um 9-11 in the world trade center hmm. it's a different definitely a different type of uh, book it's being published by um ambassador international as well uh, be released internationally uh in early 2024 if not before uh, tell us doug where can people get hold of the year of the bear it's available pretty much in all english-speaking countries around the world and some non-english-speaking countries as well uh, like germany and brazil and i know it's available in japan yeah it's available on amazon let's see it's it's also at barnesandnoble.com and christianbook.com where it's rated 5.0 
and uh, other retail sites around the world, but um, including the publisher's uh, website you can go to. It's not available for uh, sale directly from my website. I just want to know I do have an author's website, which is just my name, uh, douglaslanzo.com, www.douglaslanzo.com. And I have hundreds of poems and information on my book um, and uh, poems by my twin sons, one of whom won some IQ award and both have been published in Poetry Piece. I really think they're talented uh, writers, although they have a lot of other interests as well. Yeah. Oh, it's lovely to, to see them writing. Thanks, Doug. And again, thank you so much for coming along today and spending some time with us and just reading to us and inspiring us. Thank you very much, Doug. Oh, thank you. It's been an honor. Really a pleasure. Well, that was something a little different. I hope you enjoyed the poetry and the prose I brought you today. And remember, if you'd like to follow up on anything, you should take a look at the show notes. Do join us next time when I'm bringing you, if the internet fairies are kind to me, a live session with Sean O'Connor in which he answers questions from a Q&A in which we launched his book, The God of Bones. Until then, keep writing. <laughs>